Hey, welcome to the 72nd episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is a new song from MC White Owl, Football for a Buck, in conjunction with my book of the same name. When this podcast is an ode to writing and all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Elena Plott, a staff writer for The Atlantic and the author of a really fascinating profile that blew up last week titled Heidi Cruz Didn't Plan for This. It's a deep dive into the largely private life of Texas Senator Ted Cruz's wife and so well done. So soup to nuts, we're going to explore the entire process from genesis to execution of a genuinely terrific piece. Let's uncover the coverage of a political wife right now with two writers. All right, Elena, first of all, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Here's what I love. Number one, you've probably never heard of this podcast. Number two, you've probably never heard of me, which makes me happy because most of the people are people, sports writers I know or blah, blah, blah. And this is just, this is totally born of me seeing Heidi Cruz, Ted Cruz's wife, trending on Twitter and then seeing your story for The Atlantic. Heidi Cruz didn't plan for this. I've never had this sort of origin. Your story was trending in 2018. Is that head spinning material or do you not care? I mean, it was certainly really, really cool. Um, at this point, the story has almost half a million views, which is more than um, any story I've written so far. And it's just funny as a reporter, you know, when you're working, you know, this, I pitched this profile tr truly just as like, I'm interested in her and I don't know what the angle is yet, but can I just go talk to her and see if we get anything? And my editors were like, eh, yeah, whatever, like, go do it. And it turned into this, you know, thing that almost crashed our website. It's amazing. So I think, um, so I think seeing like her name trending, it's just like, I, I, there are some stories where you're like, okay, I, you know, I expect this to do well. This one, I really just, I didn't know if anybody was going to care about Heidi Cruz. I did it just for me, really. Right. Why did you care about Heidi Cruz? I cared about Heidi Cruz, um, in large part because I always find political spouses interesting. So earlier this year, I, um, profiled Louise Linton, Secretary Mnuchin's wife for Washingtonian Magazine. And I had so much fun with that because I I am a politics reporter. I do love politics, but I always am more interested in the characters kind of on the fringes, not really in the midst of the horse race. Um, so political spouses, you know, fit that genre really, really well. But I could never just shake, like for two years, I've never been able to shake the fact that, you know, Trump insulted Ted Cruz's wife, Trump, you know, said this about Ted Cruz's father, you know, whatever. And I just was wondering, you know, as a woman, as a wife, you know, as someone who's also ambitious, how do you, how do you internalize something like that? And we never really got an answer because she never spoke about it. So I thought, you know, I might as well just try. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I just want to read your lead real quick, which is what's fantastic. You wrote a whole new world, which is an eye house. That is what Ted Cruz wanted to give her. It was the spring of 2001, and Heidi Nelson was planning her nuptials to the man she'd uh, met just over a year earlier. On Christmas break from Harvard Business School, she'd encountered the cocky and cerebral Cruz in Austin, Texas, where they were both working on George W. Bush's presidential campaign. He was, quote-unquote, super smart and, quote-unquote, really fun and looked like a, quote-unquote, 1950s movie star. It was love at first sight, she, uh, she told me. They filled those three weeks with movies and dinners and, and drives. Then he took her to the airport, where she'd get on a plane back to Boston. Call me every day when your day is done, she instructed him. And he did call her every day that spring about 3 or 4 a.m. 
Later that summer, Ted gave her a strand of pearls, probably fakes, he still thinks, but they are from Bergdorf Goodman. And this was special. She'd mentioned once that she liked to go to Bergdorf's to look at the china and the other delicate things behind glass, and he listened. Which is how Heidi found herself planning a May wedding to a man who, for all his pretension, insisted they play A Whole New World, the popular Disney song at the end of the ceremony. She didn't understand. They had a band, she told him, a violinist, no less. Why on earth would they play a CD? Because no one can do Aladdin, he said. She relented, and it became a theme of sorts. Or that's how she remembers it anyway, on a magic carpet ride. That was 17 years ago. All right. I love breaking down stories. It's kind of my favorite thing to do. Um, the obvious way to start this story, and I think the way 70 out of 100 writers would do it, is go straight to Ted Cruz, uh, Donald Trump mocking her looks and her thoughts on that, because obviously it's the thing that hangs there. Why do you start with this? The, this is, you know, you're going to have to bear with me because this lead took me forever. I felt like it, I could not quite get it to the place I wanted for almost two weeks. And it drove me absolutely insane. But I will say my instinct from the beginning was always to begin with that line, a whole new world. That is what Ted Cruz wanted to give her or wanted for her. I can't remember what I said, but, um, you know, I, I was just listening to the transcript and writing it up. And when she got into this whole part about the song, the way she talked about it as sort of like the bigger theme of their relationship. I mean, you can't start with Donald Trump because it's, you know, for her, that that's such a small part of the bigger saga of what it means to be Ted Cruz's wife, what it means to be a political spouse. And that was the story I wanted to tell. And the way that, uh, you know, she kept reflecting and going back to the song as this sort of, I don't know, um, mantra for their life. It it seemed really natural to me. And at one point I just pulled out my iPhone while I was listening to the recording and just typed out that first line. And I was like, I don't know where I want to take it, but I know I want this to be the first line. And I knew immediately, like immediately that I wanted the very last line to have something to do with dazzling places she never knew because I heard her on the recording at the very end. We're going through the house and the way she speaks so wistfully about New York city, for instance, I was like, okay, he wanted to give her this whole new world. She doesn't feel like she quite got it. I was like, I, that's how I'm going to start it. I have to get to that second point somehow. And yeah, just do the 4,500 words in the middle to try to get there. It's really interesting. Um, how did you even get her? I should have asked this earlier. How did you even get her to do, agree to do this? You know, I, um, when I, so I was, I started my career at National Review um, in 2015. I was a Buckley fellow. And I think that really helped me source up with Republicans and conservatives. I covered Congress and, you know, Republicans, as they did now, held both chambers. And I really made a lot of valuable connections in that year, one of whom was um, somebody who works closely with the Cruz family and has become kind of part of their inner circle their close friends who I, as a source, has been great for me and I've stayed in touch with um, even up until today. And, you know, when I kind of decided I wanted to do this and my editor said, yeah, I mean, you might as well try. Back in May, I think it was, maybe in April, I can't remember, I messaged this source and I was like, do you think there's any chance in hell that Heidi would want to be profiled or would want to do an interview with me? And to my surprise, he said, you know, I don't, she might, um, I'll take it to her. Like she's never done this, but you know, I can vouch for you. 
which I think is, um, you know, I really owe it to that source for kind of lobbying for me because I think otherwise they'd be like the Atlantic. Are you kidding me? Like, what a joke. Right. Um, I did hear from my source that it was almost the idea that was almost killed at the very last minute because they were like, this is the Atlantic. I mean, do even though you know this writer, do we really want to take a chance on this? But, you know, one thing, Jeff, that I um, can't, I still can't answer um, after having published it, after having working on it for so long. I don't, I don't know really why she said yes. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why now. And I, I'm being really sincere when I say that. I, um, I, I, I could not tell you for the life of me. And it's been so funny to look at all the articles that have gone up, like speculating that like, you know, I, I just, you know, Ted Cruz's people came to me like last week and they were like, we need to soften his image. Can you do this story? And I'm like, no, I've been begging to do this for months. Like if anything, they were pushing me off. Um, right. But, you know, the piece wasn't really about her. She didn't really want to talk about her husband. She wanted to talk about herself and she talked a mile a minute for three hours straight. And I thought I might get 30 minutes where I was having to just you know, pull teeth basically to get any good quote from her. So it seemed cathartic for her in some way. But again, I, I can't really tell you why now. Um, I'm going to give you, to me, a, like a very sincere and kind of important compliment in the grand scheme of journalism right now, which is this. I was reading um, some of your articles from when you were at Yale. And I think it, it might have been your farewell column, your last column there, where you identified yourself as a Republican and as a Christian. Um, you're from Alabama and I read this story, but so I read this story way before I knew anything about your background and I thought, wow, this is just a really well done profile. And I always say, like, I always say, I'm a very, I'm a very liberal person in my day to day life. I believe I could write a profile of Ted Cruz where I'd be completely fair and completely honest, or I could write a very critical profile of Jerry Brown, you know, like. People always mm -hmm. say, oh, he's biased this way or she's biased that way. Oh, she's a Republican. She's a Democrat. I really think it, it, it's such a simplistic way of looking at this job. And I just think profiles like this, where you went in and you wrote an extremely fair, honest, sincere, unbiased, non-leaning profile, it's not as hard to do as people say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see it as hard at all. Like, um, this Tangier, this piece I wrote for Pacific standard about Tangier Island, I'm not trying to get into mm -hmm. that, but just to mention briefly, um, I had a colleague email me very sincerely after they read that piece. Um, and I think they really thought they, you know, they were complimenting me, but I just thought it was such a funny compliment by saying, um, you know, I was so impressed with your ability to humanize these people and your empathy. And I just remember thinking, you know, humanizing humans and empathy, I don't think should be exceptional. I mean, it's different, right? When it's like you're profiling a Nazi or something, but in mm -hmm. terms of just really just, you know, on the whole, like normal people with normal lives in some ways, even politicians, I, I don't think that empathy should be something that you have to, you know, that should not be the hardest part of your job. Oh, that's interesting because I do think I do understand what that person means though. And I even think with tech, you know, like I told someone, I told a friend of mine last night, you need to read this Heidi Cruz story. It's really good. And her immediate reaction, which I understand is, I don't want to read about fucking Heidi Cruz. Like, I don't want to read anything about Ted Cruz. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, uh, 
I think it is harder. Just the lines have become so hardened and every edge has become so precisely drawn that it is harder than it used to be to even offer the idea that Donald Trump is a human being. Hillary Clinton is a human being. Heidi Cruz is a human being. Ted Cruz is a human being. There, there are human qualities to these people beneath the headlines and the basic sound bites. You know, I do mm-hmm. think it has become harder to convince people that that is a thing that we can do. Yeah, well, it's harder to convince not just readers that, you know, that thing is worth that, that element is worth reading about. But I think sometimes it might be hard to convince journalists that it's one worth writing about. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it just I happens to be the one I care about the most. Yeah, I agree. All right. So I love, um, you had some stuff in this Heidi Cruz story that I just love. For example, you wrote out, this is, I, I think this is your best line. I really do. You wrote, um, if some people look like their dogs, Heidi Cruz looks like her house. Expensive, serene, draped in pretty fabrics. That Wednesday afternoon, she greeted me somewhat breathlessly. Uh, this client call went much longer than I thought it would. Wearing a light blue silk dress, a slightly darker blue scarf, and a knotted strand of pearls. Not the one from Ted. Um, as we sat down to eat, she said what I imagine all women who wear these things must say. Her voice warm and, and conspirational. We're going to have some champagne. Yes, we are. That whole, um, that whole passage is, is fantastic. How do you even? Oh, thank you. That's really good. How do you even think to yourself, um, if some people look like their dogs, Heidi Cruz looks like her house, and how do you decide to put that in print? Um, well, I can tell you, I was sitting right where I am now when I came up with it at my desk in my apartment in DC. Um, I, I think I, I mean, I was just imagining how ethereal she looked when she glided through the house and how. Her coloring, I mean, it's such a strange thing to think, but I was like, all her coloring like matches this dining room we're sitting in. Um, even like the way her hair shines and the gleam on this dining room table. And I remembered reading, I think it might have been like a BuzzFeed listicle a long time ago about people who look like their dogs. And I was like, okay, I hope I didn't just make up the fact that that is like actually things. So I did spend time Googling like people who look like their dogs or no, I Googled Oprah looks like her dog because that's the one uh-huh. I remembered from whatever article I read. And so once Wait, does I Oprah look like her dog? Yes, she does. She does. I can <laughs> confirm. <laughs> okay. So once I established that fact that this is, you know, this is something that people say about people quite often. Um, you know, I was like, okay, I'll go, I'll, I'll go ahead with it. Um, and I toyed a while with, so I had expensive, serene, draped in pretty fabrics. I toyed a long time with whether to put that after a colon. I had it in its own sentence. I had, you know, just like a fragment, which is to say expensive, serene, draped in pretty fabrics. Um, so it took a while just like to kind of tool the grammar or to get it or like syntactically to get it just the way I wanted. But that mm-hmm. idea, um, you know, it was pretty much once I wrote it in that first draft, it didn't change. Now, if I'm her, I don't know how I feel about that line. I was thinking that when I read it. I don't know how, I, because on the one hand, it kind of suggests a little bit of a, uh, it feels a little Stepford, you know, like she's this woman mm-hmm. in this perfect house with this. Per- and I want, did she, um, I think I asked these a few days ago and you hadn't heard, has she, has she told you what she thought of the story? Yeah. So, um, her spokesman, I, I reached out to her spokesman who said, um, I can actually pull up the message, but it was, it was good. Um, See, she said to me, um, 
Honestly, her biggest worry was the photo. She didn't like it, but it is what it is. I think it was weird for her to read about herself, but she got encouraging feedback too. Um, and so, you know, in my book, that, that was a great reaction. Yeah, <laughs> and that was right. it. You know, there was, a, I, you, you always worry when you publish a big piece like that, that you're going to be like flooded with angry phone calls from a spokesman or for the su- from the subject themselves being like, you totally took this out of context or you misrepresented me here or this is wrong. And I didn't get any of that, which right. was such a relief, you know, because I, I worked really hard to make sure everything was exactly how it was on the transcript. Every fact, uh, you know, I'd cover my bases with them pretty much being as thorough as I could about what was coming in the piece because I didn't want there to be any surprises. And I'm really glad that that paid off as it usually does, but especially in this case. Are you taping her the whole time you were with her? Yes. And do you transcribe your own? Do you transcribe all your own notes? How do you do that? I don't typically. Um, I use this service called Rev.com for yeah. most interviews. A buck a but, word. Buck a word. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this interview in particular, um, when I did it, so I did it on a day in August and I wasn't able to get back around to it. Um, for two more weeks because I had to file a bunch of other stories that I had reported out while I was in Texas um, that were more mm-hmm. time sensitive. And because I had that space, um, I really wanted to be able to transcribe it myself so I could listen to it again. And, you know, there's so much that if you're just reading a transcript that you lose in terms of atmospherics or the way her inflection changes on certain words. And so I really wanted to just make sure that um, I could kind of reimmerse myself and what it felt like to be there because it had been a while since the lunch itself. Yeah. You know, Rev is a, um, Rev is a tricky thing. I'm working on a book now and I had an eight hour interview with a really important person for my book and Rev made me lazy and I sent it in mm-hmm. and I regret it so much. Because it's just like, it's like crack. Then you start revving everything because it's not that expensive and transcribing tape is the worst thing in the world, but it's so important to do. Yeah. So I mean, with this story in particular, like one thing I wanted to point out about Heidi is that, um, one, I loved talking to her. She's very easy to talk to, but she, she, she's so charming that when she talks, she can couch even the most like damning statements in just such you know, it just feels light and fun and we're just having a good time and whatever. And it didn't, you know, I'm so glad I did transcribe it myself because I would listen to some of the things that she would say, but she'd just be laughing about and how in the moment, the the, the gravity of what she was saying just totally went over my head. Um, but right. when I was, you know, back in my own home listening to the transcription, I was like, holy shit, how did I not like lose it when she said it right then and be like, Oh my God, like what is going on? I mean, she just has this way of, you know, I don't know, maybe it's like a trance like power or something, but another, that's another reason I was glad I transcribed it. Like, I don't even think the, um, really the whole idea of the whole new world thing would have come if I had just gotten it transcribed and read it. Right. Right. Um, she's about, I, I always, I talk about this, with covering sports a lot. I'm uh, I'm in my mid forties and as athletes get younger and younger and I get older and older, I find it increasingly difficult in some ways to relate. Uh, it's hard for me at 46 sometimes to relate with a 22 year old, you know, coming straight out of college mm-hmm. and Heidi Cruz probably has 20 years on you. I'm guessing about 25 yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, 
and you're going into I this think exa- world. Exactly 21. <laughs> 21 years older than you. And, um, you know, you're going into this world that isn't clearly is not your world. Um, is it easy to relate to her? It doesn't matter if you relate to her. Do you, do you have to sort of study up on what you're walking into? It doesn't matter. Is, is it helpful in a way being younger? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot about being a young female reporter that is helpful. Um, there are a lot of bad things, as I'm sure you can guess, but I do think one good thing is that subjects often regard me as non-threatening because I am young. Um, you know, I do have an accent. I, I do genuinely go into interviews like, you know, and try to treat it like, I'm making a friend, um, in profiles, especially like it's different when I'm, you know, running around Capitol news, like trying to break news and trying to figure out, you know, the reality of what people are talking about in closed door meetings. But when I'm trying to do a really meaningful, honest portrait of someone, um, you know, I want it, I want it to feel like a good conversation from their end. Like they were really able to be candid with me and that they felt they were talking to someone who was empathetic. And I think, um, that's probably easier to do with someone who, you know, Heidi sees herself as a mentor to a lot of young women. And it did feel like at times when she was speaking to me, she was speaking from a place of, you know, I'm telling you this because I'm advising you, like, you shouldn't do this this way, or you should think twice before it do, doing it the way I did. So I do, I do think that dynamic helped me a bit when I was talking to her. Interesting. Do you, in politics... I mean, in sports is certainly a stone issue. In politics, do you find uh, men in their 50s, 60s, 40s, whatever, can still have an air of condescension toward you that maybe they would not have to a male of your age? Yeah, I, I mean, I've certainly experienced that on a number of occasions, occasions but I also know that, you know, I, I'm pretty smart. I know how to spin it to my advantage. I think a lot of times... I get spoken to, even though I've been on the Hill for three years with all these other guys, I get spoken to like, I maybe don't quite understand like what's being debated, but I also Mm -hmm. find if you like play into that a little bit, um, that they end up giving you more than they should have because they don't. Wait, how do you mean by that? How do you mean by that? What, What do you mean by that? That's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of times I'll go on the Hill and when I'm talking to members, I, um, Like I will purposely kind of act very, you know, just like kind of lost and wide eyed and like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I can't believe, you know, what you must be going through. Like really just, you know, if they're going to treat me or speak to me in a tone that suggests like you don't really understand the intricacies of what's going on. I'll be like, oh my gosh, you're so right. This is so over my head. Like, please explain it more to me. Can you please explain more what you mean by this? And by drawing them out in that way, I find that I often get a bit more than maybe they would be willing to. And I think a good example of that is um, I profiled Secretary Zinke for GQ yeah, last summer. That was great, by the way. That was a great thank profile. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and there was one moment that was, I felt like a very me kind of moment in an interview. We were talking and I said to him like, you know, who are your best friends in the cabinet? And he said, well, one of them is Rick Perry. And I was like, oh, that's so fun. Like, what do y'all do when you hang out? Like, what do you like about him? What, you know, what do y'all talk about? Which seems like it's such a like puffy question. Right. Um, and he ends up saying, um, well, you know, we do joke about the fact a lot that, um, you know, he came in and he was like, whoa, Ryan, I had no idea that the department of energy was actually about 
energy. And Brian Zinke was like, yeah. And I told him, you know, it's actually about science, like interior deals with energy. And we just like started cracking up. Like that was the funniest thing ever. Um, but that part of the piece like caused such a ruckus on Twitter because it's like, oh, okay, casual. The guy who like oversees our nuclear arsenal did not know that <laughs> that was what he Wait, was going to be I have doing a question. when he got to DC. As he's, as he's saying this to you and you're laughing it up, are you thinking in your head, yeah, this will be pretty good material? Oh, yeah. It's like, haha, <laughs> like gold. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's really good. Um, yeah, that's funny. That is a, uh, it's funny in, I don't know if you feel this way in politics, in sports, there's such condescension sometimes for young female reporters. And, you know, there was a uh, Cam Newton, the quarterback, I don't know how big mm-hmm. of a sports fan you are, but Cam, Cam Newton of the Carolina Panthers saying to a surprise that a woman understood the intricacies of the offense. I remember. And yeah. It, yeah. And it's so embarrassing. And it, I feel like it's just like politics. Like it's not that complicated, buddy. Like it doesn't take well, a man to, be to fair, figure out. The, I would. I said, to be fair, I would expect as much from someone who played at Auburn, but that's just me. Oh, painful. Right. Says a Tuscaloosa <laughs> lady. Uh, ah, yeah. so funny. Um, um, I want to go over one more point in your, uh, in your story that I really loved. And, and I, I literally have it. I printed out your piece. I have three money signs by this paragraph because I consider this the money paragraph of your story in many ways, which is, um, Americans often regard prominent politicians, spouses, usually women as their quote unquote better halves. Uh, it's ostensibly flattering, a way to poke fun at a powerful man for not being nearly as delightful as his wife. And then he put parentheses, Barack Obama, for example, once joked that he and Jay-Z had bonded in part because, quote, we both have wives who are significantly more popular than we are. But it's also patronizing, a formulation more typically rooted in a partner's beauty or charm than in her accomplishments. However implicitly, voters look to the desirability of a spouse to prove or disprove the desirability of a candidate. Uh, Trump's tweet was thus not only a playground jab, was also a way to telegraph a more fundamental failure on Ted's part. And if some voters bought that, perhaps they could also be convinced that he was willing to step out on her. Okay. An amazing paragraph. And here's why. I think it takes a lot of practice and experience to be able to narrate a story with that much of yourself in it. Like that is not a, that is not, you're not quoting Heidi Cruz. You're not quoting Ted Cruz. That is you sort of doing a mini lecture in a sense on, on how we view political wives. Um, and it's based solely on your experience covering politics and sort of how it is. It's not an easy thing to teach people how to do, um, mm-hmm. you know, because we're taught, we're taught, keep yourself out of a story and we're taught, here's how you do it. And you go to journalism score or whatever, and they teach you very specific ways. And you're supposed to quote people and attribution, attribution. How do you sort of, how do you explain someone this and that this is okay and how to do it? I struggle with this so much, how to explain it. I think it's a really good question because it's something when I first got to Washington and first started as a journalist three years ago that I really, really struggled with because I, I didn't know that there was a difference between analysis and opinion, I guess is the way I should put it. Um, You know, of course, I struggled so much when my editor would say, you know, I need more of like an analytical nut graph. I'd be, I, I, I mean, I was just appalled. I was like, well, I, you know, I don't have anybody to quote saying that. And, um, but over time, you know, you get to a point where you trust yourself as a reporter that you've done so many interviews and done so much research that you can speak author- on a, 
with authority about a subject. And there is something much more solid and meaningful to that than just, you know, Elena Plot's opinion about it. Um, I wrote that paragraph because I had read a ton of books by political spouses when I wrote this story. I had even talked to some when I thought this might be like more of a broad feature about the life of a political spouse instead of just about Heidi Cruz. So I felt like I could, you know, write with authority when I say this is how, you know, the atmospherics are when you are a political spouse. And this is how we as voters respond to them. Yeah. And sincerely, one of my favorite profiles of the year. I just think it's great. Oh, thank you did a Jeff. freaking bang up job. Yeah, it's really good. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who, and this is true, once won a contest in high school where she had to drop an egg off a building without having a crack. So uh, how'd you do that? Well, first I made a little basket out of some glue, some toothpicks, and... Yeah, I don't care. But I won. No, seriously, I don't care. I just wanted to get you here to do another 503 Sports ad. That wasn't nice. Yeah, I know. But you know what is nice? 503 Sports, the kings of throwback sports merchandise. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Kit Lathrop Arizona Outlaws jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced, so be like Catherine Perlman and visit 503-sports.com. I won. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious about something. I was wondering. So there's a, uh, you ever see the movie Men in Black? Yes. Okay. So there's an exchange in Men in Black that always is in my head. Will Smith discharges his weapon in public and Tommy Lee Jones says, don't do that. And Will Smith says, man, we ain't got time for this cover of bullshit. I don't know whether or not you've forgotten, but there's an Archillian battle cruiser about to. And Tommy Lee Jones' character says, there's always an Archillian battle cruiser or Carillion death ray or an intergalactic plague that's about to wipe out all of life on this miserable little planet. And the only way these people can get on with their happy lives is they do not know about it. The reason I bring this up randomly, I'm always fascinated by political writers and people very close to politics. Because for people like me who cover sports or my wife who's a social worker or people up and down the street, it's like, holy shit, climate change. This is the worst. Or holy shit, the November 6th election. This is going to be blah, blah, blah. This, oh my God, what's going to happen if we don't win? If we don't win, the country's going to hell. And I wonder if you cover politics up close like you do if you're more chill about these things than your average person. I mean, so I don't even like have a cable subscription. I don't like I'm not somebody who has to struggle to get off Twitter when I go on vacation. Um, I when I leave the office for the day, like I'm pretty much done. I mean, but I know a lot of my reporter friends are you know, they can't get enough of that. It's just they want every bit of information all the time. But I think one thing I've learned is that, you know, I can go on an abroad flight for the first trip to Europe I've ever gone on with my family and land after a so many hour flight and turn on my phone. And even if I've missed some huge Trump tweet, like nothing in my life has changed. Um, and I think a lot of times in DC, we, we do forget that. Um, that a lot of people outside of, you know, the greater Washington area aren't just freaking out about every single development in the Kavanaugh hearing. And I think that's why, like, in, you know, you mentioned climate change. When I decided I wanted to cover climate change, I, you know, to me, it's not useful, however true it might be to write a, 
to write just like a big analytical piece about how dire it is and how we have to do something now and whatnot. I feel like you only, you, you're only really influential as a journalist if you give people a reason to believe why the thing that you think is really urgent could affect them personally. I mean, I think that's how everyone looks at politics and their lives, their lives and, you know, cable news, whatever. So for me to be able to, um, talk about climate change through the prism of like one tiny island with a bunch of Trump supporters and show, you know, hopefully show to a really intimate level how climate change could impact them. You know, that's the time that I would hope a reader maybe um, who lives somewhere else would say, okay, this feels real now because it's actually touching human beings who maybe they voted like I did. And maybe I should pay attention to this after all, because I think otherwise when you just get on Twitter and you see like blue check marks spouting off about how, you know, um, we're all going to die because of global warming in 20 years. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't really mean anything if you're just like sitting at home and you see that on your computer. Like, you know, if you're like, I have no evidence of that whatsoever. I think if you, if you're able to show through journalism, actual evidence and actual ways that, you know, these so-called urgent issues touch people's lives. That's when I think, you know, people pay attention. Yeah. Um, this story you wrote for Pacific Standard, it's called The Country's First Climate Change Casualties, question uh, mark. Scientists predict Tangier Island could be uninhabitable within 25 years. This is a story of the people willing to go down with it and why they've risked it all on Donald Trump to keep them afloat. And this ran in September, September 4th. Um, mm-hmm. Another great story. Here's my question that I, I kept thinking throughout. You're reporting this piece. You're on this island in Virginia. 700 people live there. There's a mayor who you kind of focus on, uh, James Eskridge. His nickname is Uger, which is weird. And um, <laughs> and uh, I feel like of all the nicknames you could have in the world, Uger may not be the one you want. But um, <laughs> he's this guy. He's a mayor of this island that is, you know, probably not going to exist in 30 years if we if we stay the course. And he loves Trump. He doesn't really believe in climate change or he doesn't seem to care about it. You have a quote there. If God has a use for tangier, nothing's going to happen to us. And I wonder how you're interviewing this guy. I mean, you kind of know he's incorrect in his take on climate change. You, the reporter, I mean, you're, you, you know, climate change clear, seems better than this guy. Um, he strikes me as this kind of a guy who's either naive or really dumb. And yet you report it. I think very professionally and very sort of you give him his, his voice. Is there not a voice inside of you while you're interviewing him that's thinking, Jesus Christ, man, what the hell? Mm, no, not, not really. Just because I think, I, I think it, it's, it might be easy to feel that way from afar if you don't actually meet these people. But then when you go on the island and you're talking to these really lovely families, just because they're misguided on something you think is, you know, pretty stone cold, accurate doesn't mean that, you know, it's not worth it for them to say their piece. And again, I think that's one of the blessings of a reporter. You know, you always have the opportunity to go get that perspective, like to go straight to the source to figure out why it is the way they think the way they do. And I, and I think that, you know, just to kind of condescend to them is never going to be the way to get them to open up about the very specific reasons they hold these certain views about climate change because until you get that information, you don't know how to talk to them to potentially 
change their minds. And that's not my job as a reporter, but I do think right. a reporter's job is to tell a story so completely that either, you know, advocacy organizations or candidates for office can read that and say, oh, this is exactly where this person is coming from. And because this makes sense to me, I can, you know, tailor my pitch accordingly. Interesting. Um, how do you even know about this story? Like, how do you know to pitch it? Um, I just read a small story in the Washington Post last fall. So I pitched a story last October. Um, and I think it was in September. I just saw a small piece in the Post about this island. And I think it was just a follow up to the fact that, you know, Trump had called him that summer and just sort of saying like, what's the status of things now? I can't even remember. It was like, it was one of those just very, very small pieces where, and I know you know this as a feature writer, you're kind of like, oh, there's, you know, there's a lot more there. And that I think that would make for a great magazine piece. So I really just on a whim, cold emailed the editor-in-chief of Pacific Standard because I thought, you know, it's something they'd be interested in. And within two hours, it was assigned, which was really exciting. Man. These stories, I find these stories really tough. Like I did a story years ago about coal ash in Tennessee for Reader's Digest back when Reader's, I don't know, does Reader's Digest still exist anymore? Do you know? I think, I think so. Yeah. 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 But uh, back when they were paying pretty well and um, mm -hmm. I found it, it was a little bit out of my comfort zone. And when you're sort of combining people and personalities and, you know, the mayor is a big part of this story along with this sort of issue. Uh, you know, and the science behind it, um, those can be pretty dizzying pieces to write. Um, did you approach this more as a, I'm going to find out who these people are, or did you approach this more as I'm going to write about sort of the science and reality, physical realities of this island? Well, I, I think the reason I went out there intending more to sort of figure out who the people were themselves was because the science had been written about quite a bit. The science, it, just in terms of like people who pay attention to that stuff, I wasn't going to say anything new about the science. And I'm also not, it's not the beat for me. So I think it'd be irresponsible for me to just like try to take on a feature just about the science of what's going on on Tangier. What I do think, you know, what does interest me are people and so, like I mentioned, I just wanted to go and see why are y'all so adamant that, you know, this is not in fact what's happening. And, it, you know, I, I was really nervous when I got on my notes and had to start writing because I thought, oh, my God, how do you even structure something like this? I mean, it's just, you know, a big portrait, a sprawling portrait of an island. Where do I even start? And because the mayor had sort of been my shepherd throughout town and like introducing me to people. And he was the one who um, had been kind of the most outspoken and the most convicted um, in his beliefs on what was going to happen to the island. I didn't treat it as a profile. I just, I felt like with every section, I wanted to come back to him somehow or just sort of use him as a way to keep my gaze steady as I wrote something like this. Because like you mentioned, when you're just told like, go do a portrait of this town. I mean, there are a million different ways you can go and it's so easy to get lost. And having him as like an anchor of sorts, I think really helped, you know, keep me sane while I was writing it. Yeah. Um, is this a good time to cover politics or a, like a, or a maddening time to cover politics? Well, it's hard for me to, a counterfactual is hard for me to, you know, to say, because I don't know any other way. I just started three years ago. So in a way, it's always been kind of crazy. 
Um, but I really love my job. I mean, I love that, um, there, there seems to be an appetite for the kind of feature length writing that I do. I mean, that Heidi piece was almost 5,000 words. And like I said, almost half a million people read it and there was great engagement time. So, you know, I think if, you know, it's a great time to cover politics in the sense that like, if you do anything even tangentially related to it, no matter how long there is going to be, um, a natural set of readers out there, which is really exciting. Yeah. It, the thing that's very fascinating, Huda, I had on a, a, another political writer a couple of months ago, and she was saying how the funny thing about Trump is he bashes the media nonstop, but he loves and needs the media. So this idea mm-hmm. that like someone, he wants to put a stop to coverage or wants to end you know, whatever, would want to kill the Washington Post and the New York Times is a laughable concept because it's kind of his oxygen as well. Um, mm-hmm. You feel that way? No? Yes, yeah, maybe. I absolutely, absolutely feel that way. I, you know, I think it's the same with any human being. If they're talking about how much they hate something all the time, it probably means that they don't actually hate it that much. <laughs> right. Yeah, I would agree. Um, listen, Elena, seriously. You've, uh, you've made a fan. Um, I just think, I think your writing is terrific. I think your approach to these stories is great. Uh, I love the pacing. I love the, the, the texture of it all. I just think, um, you're doing something right. And, and again, the thing I really liked or really sort of took it to a next level for me is when I'm reading about you at Yale and you sort of identify as conservative. And I, cause I always say to people, I've said this in sports for years. Like I grew up in New York, a Mets fan. Um, and people say, well, you're biased against a team or you're biased for a city. And I would say, you don't have to be that way. There's no, Mm-mm. you know, I just hate when people feel that you don't have to be that way. You can be an unbiased writer. You can go into a subject with a, with no slant whatsoever, even if you grew up this way or that way. And I just think you are a very, very good, uh, example of that. I want to thank today's guest, Elena Plot, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Elena on Twitter at Elena Plot. Visit her website at elenaplot.com and read much of her work in the Atlantic. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. You visit the website at 503-sports.com. My still newish book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazy Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the Funkadelic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. Spring fling football and promo went and traced it. USFL.